Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is God's word. Well, Psalm 23 paints a beautiful picture of life, uh, sort of a calming at the beginning, not so much so, so towards the end, a calming picture of a shepherd uh, caring for his sheep, although he cares for his sheep throughout the psalm. You know, I actually felt it this past Sunday. I came home from church, and this past Sunday was not the easiest of messages to give. And I sat in a chair in my backyard. Pam said, why don't you just take a rest for a while, take a seat. I sat in a chair, and I put my head back, and the sun was in my face. There was a gentle breeze that was blowing. You know how the trees, are you can hear them blowing. And I was out. I fell asleep. I dozed off. And I guess I would say in that moment, uh, the Lord was my shepherd, and I feared no evil. At that moment, life was completely safe for me. Uh, then a, a little bit later, uh, my beloved Pam came out with a really good sandwich. She makes good sandwiches. I don't make good sandwiches. And a cup of tea. I guess she wanted me to wake up. But she brought me a sandwich and a cup of tea. And so the Lord was my shepherd, but at that moment, I shall not want. I had everything I could possibly want, a beautiful day, uh, something to eat, some tea, and my beautiful wife sitting in the seat uh, next to me. It was a momentary break from what we might call the uncertainty and, and the problems of life. And though that uncertainty and those problems, we all, we all know that they can easily leave us uh, discouraged and overwhelmed. And for some of us, sometimes... Uh, we can be paralyzed and not even know what to do. Psalm 23, I think, is one of those psalms that has the effect of bringing us back to sort of like that childlike place. You know how I think of a lot of things in my childhood that were seemingly carefree. And, and so maybe even a place of childlike faith. Yet Psalm 23 does it without ignoring the realities and the heartbreak of life. Why, why is it? I think because it does something. Psalm 23 does something for us, like most of the Bible does, if we're looking out for it, that is actually the best for us. And a lot of people who read the Bible, and I would even say a lot of people who teach the Bible, don't do this, what the Bible does. You say, what is that? Well, Psalm 23 keeps our eyes focused on what is the title of our message tonight, Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And it keeps our eyes on the, the Good Shepherd, God himself, instead of our eyes just on ourselves and our problems. Or you could say, particularly as you get to the end of the psalm, that it is keeping our eyes on Jesus with us 
in the midst of our problems. So we can be on the lookout, very important thing in the Christian life, to be on the lookout for what God is doing in the midst of what's going on and what we in our lives and what we are doing. In other words, I think that Psalm 23 makes us think less of our responsibility to Jesus. Now, there are responsibilities to Jesus. We'll talk a little bit about some of that on Sunday. But a lot of people live with that low-level guilt of, I'm not doing enough for God. Like, God must be so incredibly disappointed with me. Like, heaven is disrupted because I'm not doing enough for God. And Psalm 23 takes our eyes really off of what we're doing for God and puts us onto, yes, what Jesus is doing for us, but I would say even more than that, that Jesus is responsible for us, that we are in his care. Now, I believe with all of my heart, and I realize that I'm in the minority, that what we do for Jesus is not the most important thing in our lives. I believe it is more important and it is faith-sustaining what Jesus is to us. Let me say that again. I'm not saying that's everything, but more important than what we do for Jesus is the way we think about, and it actually builds our faith, is what Jesus is to us, clearly seeing that Jesus is responsible for us, and it is Jesus who keeps us. Does that mean we run away from Jesus? No, we don't run away from the good shepherd but we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. Very, very important. The more we focus on Jesus instead of ourselves, and if you don't know this yet, I'm maybe going to tell you something that deep down you know, but maybe you hearing someone actually put it into words. Living a life completely focused on yourself or mostly focused on yourself is an absolute prison. It is a terrible way to live, the, the, it, the, and, and it will make it hard to trust Jesus and to let him lead you. But if you focus on Jesus instead of yourself, and I do the same thing, it will be easier for us to trust him and easier for him to lead us. But that's not leading us in our ways. That's leading us in his ways. And then our part then is to follow and not resist. And here's where it gets easier. Some of you say, that's super hard, Pastor Jim. Here's where it gets easier. If your eyes are focused on Jesus, it will be easier to resist. If your eyes are focused on yourself, it will be very, very hard to resist wanting to go your own way. So this is the uh, fourth and, and final uh, part uh, of that we're doing here in, in Psalm 23 message. And it was written by King David uh, about a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. In part one, we looked at verses one through three. We call that study the shepherd and his people. In part two, we looked at verse four only, the shepherd who is with his people. In part three, we looked at verse five and six, the shepherd who pursues his people. In those studies, we focused more on David the shepherd and, and his shepherd. 
or David the shepherd. Remember, David was born a shepherd, but he was also the king, and the kings were thought to be the shepherds of Israel. But here, the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd boy, is telling us, hey, I think of myself just as another one of God's sheep. Tells you something about his humility. And he says, actually, the more I thought about shepherding, I realized the Lord is my shepherd. Must have been a great moment out in the fields when he realized that. But tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to stick with Psalm 23. But at the same time, we're going to fast forward a thousand years into the life of Jesus where we see how David, seemingly unknowingly, we don't know what the prophets knew and did not know about how they were writing, but he seemed to also be writing of the Messiah who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we said earlier it's easier to, in a first study, it's important to remember that for a thousand years, the people of God viewed this psalm very, very differently because they didn't know about Jesus. They were looking forward to the Messiah, yes, but they didn't have the specific information that we have. So are we at an advantage? Absolutely, yes. But looking back to David's time, looking back to a thousand years after that to Jesus's time, looking into our time, and then looking off into the future, I hope tonight we're going to find extremely faith building. So Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, what does the good shepherd do? Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures, so that would be pasture, grass, food, makes me lie down, rest, food and rest. He leads me beside the still waters. He takes me to a place sheep could drown easily where I won't drown he takes me to a place to drink and to be refreshed. Now, when we come to the New Testament in John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. Now, some of us see the pictures of Jesus with the little lamb or Jesus walking, and the, we think that's all nice and stuff like that. The religious leaders were not too happy with that. Why? Because they knew that the shepherds of Israel, they, they hadn't had kings on the throne in a while, although they still had the family line of the kings of which Jesus was part of, but they knew that the kings were called the shepherds of Israel. They did not like the fact that Jesus was calling himself, okay, the good shepherd. They also knew that the Bible writers in the Old Testament referred to, sometimes referred to God himself as the shepherd of Israel. So when he comes along and says to everybody, hey, I'm the good shepherd, they know exactly what he's saying. They're like, He's saying he's the king. He's saying that he's God. Also in that same chapter, chapter uh, John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If some versions say the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So clearly Jesus is claiming to be the door to God's pasture. He said it, you can go, you'll be saved, you'll go in and out and you'll find pasture. Clearly, Jesus is saying he is the only way to be saved and to make it and reach eternal rest with God. This infuriated the religious leaders 
And it's why Jesus told the apostles in Matthew chapter 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw him glorified, and they wanted to build Mount Rushmore there. They wanted to have a statue for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't tell anybody about this stuff until I rise from the dead. Jesus was well aware of the rest that all people need. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now let's bring that into today. How applicable is that to all of us in our day of exhaustion? I cannot believe how many people know, are telling me that they are exhausted. Even people under lockdown who haven't been going out of the house say, I can't understand it. I'm absolutely exhausted. It's brain fatigue. It's brain fatigue. How many people are feeling a sense of helplessness and despair? How many people are feeling a sense of numbness and a sense of anxiety. Jesus comes along and says, Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Jesus' ability to uh, feed his flock, and actually those not even of his flock, is clearly seen in Jesus feeding the multitudes. I'm going to take some passages out of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 31, it says, And he said to them, talking to his followers, as the apostles, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going. There was a lot of busyness. There was a lot of work going on, a lot of fatigue. And, and, said, and said, And they did not even have time to eat. And when you're ministering to people, sometimes that's just the way it goes. Sometimes I go home. And Pam is like, you're inhaling your dinner. Slow down. And I'm like, you know, I don't even think I ate since 5 o'clock this morning. And she's like, you got to eat. And I'm just, I was just so busy. I didn't even have time to stop and eat. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, and it said, And Jesus, when he came out, when he, when he was getting the disciples away, they got into a boat and, and it said, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. He knew the people needed a shepherd. He knew they needed guidance, but he felt bad for them. He was filled with compassion. That word, it really has to do with his bowels inside. He was like, oh, look at them. They don't have a shepherd. So what did he do? Mark tells us, so he began to teach them many things. Isn't it interesting? Luke tells us he began to teach them the things of the kingdom of God. So the feeding of the sheep, the feeding of the people without a shepherd, begins not with the food, but begins with the word of God. And that's how Jesus began to feed them. 
Now, Mark tells us that there were about 5,000 men there. And Mark's gospel was largely, we believe, dictated to him by the apostle Peter. He told us there was about 5,000 men there, plus women and children. And all they had to do to feed, all they had to feed everybody was five loaves of bread and, and two fish. But it wasn't like, you know, a big 15-foot hoagie sub and, you know, a couple big things that they caught. Probably a, a kid's lunch or something like that, a happy meal, if you will. And that's all they really had. Mark 6.39 says, Then he, Jesus, commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. You know, that reminds me of something. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Just like David said of his shepherd, here Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, made the people lie down in the green grass. Mark chapter 6, verse 42, uh, so it said, So they all ate and were filled. Reminds us of what was said about Moses. Reminds me also of what David said, Psalm 23, verse 1, the most famous line of this psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They were full. Jesus had given them so much, and they were satisfied. David says at the end of verse 2, he, he leads me beside the still waters. In John chapter 4, Jesus met a, a Samaritan woman at a well. They would go out to get the water uh, at the well. And, and due to the racism that existed in Israel that, that went all the way back to the problems that they had when they would get invaded and they would bring in foreigners or people from the outside, if you will, that's what they called them, and, and being people from the outside into the land and they would, and they would mix in with the uh, people who were Israelites and that group became known as the Samaritans. And, you know, they seemed like they wanted to follow God as much as anybody else, to be honest. Not all, but of course. But, but due to the racism in Israel, John 4 tells us that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Plus, uh, we also know that this woman had a reputation. She was known to be seen around a lot of different men. And she was shocked that Jesus would talk to her. First off, usually the rabbis didn't talk to women, and they called Jesus rabbi because he was a teacher. And she was a Samaritan, so she was very, very shocked. And she was there for ordinary water. And Jesus told her about living water. And she asked, where do I get this? John 4, 13 and 14, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, meaning in the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He leads me beside still waters. I love her answer. I love it. She goes, where do I get this water? I mean, instead of like, you know, I'm not religious or anything like that. She wants to know, where do I get this living water? John chapter 7, uh, verse 37 through 39, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let me stop right there, friend, do you thirst? I don't, I don't mean do you need to get something to drink. Is your, is your soul going kind of like... Thirsty for God. 
Does it, does it want some of that living water? Are you like that Samaritan woman and you're like, hey, listen, I, I maybe I'm not the kind of good church person or something like that, but if you're willing to offer that to anyone, you're willing to offer that to her, certainly there must be some for me. And Jesus said, and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then John gives us some commentary to help us figure it out. He says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him. By the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you actually can't go to heaven. It's sort of like having a spacesuit. You need to have a spacesuit to be on the moon. You need the Holy Spirit living in you to go to heaven. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So David points to us when he says here in verse 1 and 2, he he points to the all-sufficient shepherd, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He cares for the flock all the way on into eternity. And true contentment, David would tell us, many of the great saints of the Bible will tell us, uh, many of you know this, that true contentment and security is, is found in being able to say that Jesus is my shepherd and. Jesus is my shepherd and he leads me. This is what Jesus is for his people. He is the shepherd who leads his sheep. The challenge for you and for me is actually to experience it. And one of the things I see with people who are having trouble experiencing it is they need to change their thinking because there's a journey to get to saying he's my shepherd and he leads me. So there's a journey to, to, the, to the my and the me. What is the journey? What is the, what is the quick route to get there? I believe with all my heart this is it. To realize that God, the great shepherd of heaven, stooped down to be our shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ to be able to call his people his flock. Friend, do you want in the flock tonight? All you need to do is put your trust in the shepherd and begin to follow him. See, it's very important to realize that to be part of the flock, you and I have to willingly put ourselves under the shepherding care of the good shepherd. Let me say that again. Think about, a, think about sheep. Think about a shepherd. And so if you and I want to be part of Jesus' flock, we have to be willing to put ourselves under the shepherding care of the good shepherd. Now, I'm just going to take a moment of, of transparent honesty for a second, and please don't think I'm talking about anyone in particular. One of the things I don't like about pastoring, and all my experience is only pastoring in an American church, in a busy, outside a busy metropolitan area, is that so many of the emails and texts that I get basically come down to this. Can you do this for me? 
or can you get somebody to do this for me? But how much more glorious would it be? Stick with me. Don't get upset. How much more glorious would it be? How much more fulfilling and fruitful would it be for all of us if it was, can you tell me how to come under the pastoral care of Jesus? Like, that's what I want to know. Uh, you know, I, I don't need this sent to me, or I don't need this. I don't need you to go look for my, you know, for my pen in the, in the sanctuary or something like that. I, I want to know how can I come under the shepherding care of Jesus? Or, or how do I come to the place of rest? My soul is just on fire with busyness and unsettledness. How do I come to that place of rest? How do I come to the place to sit quietly before Jesus? And then can you explain to me, how do I follow him when he leads me? How do I do that? Verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. Let's just stop right there. Soul really speaks of life and of vitality. Some would translate it, he restores me to health or he, he restores me to salvation. And when, when David writes, he restores my soul, that makes a, a lot of sense in the context of wandering sheep in a very, very dangerous world. For, for a follower of Jesus on life's journey, we're, we're, we're journeying, we're walking through this life. We, we say as, as followers of Jesus, we're pilgrims. Too many settlers in the church. That's a side note, but, but we're pilgrims. We're on our way home. And, and we are, if you will, as part of the flock with the shepherd, searching for spiritual food, serving the Lord in daily life, and in church life, all the while, we find ourselves constantly, I'm going to say it, it's okay, we are battling indwelling sin. It's still there. We're, yes, we're forgiven of our sin, but indwelling sin is still kind of with us. That's why we say if you got to keep your eyes on Jesus, not yourself, because you're feeding, you're feeding righteousness to your soul, and you're not feeding unrighteousness to your soul. But sadly, less and less followers of Jesus seem to be searching for spiritual food. The, the, the polling that is done is telling us that less and less people are spending time in the Word of God. And people are attending church services when they are going less than they used to. Friends, this is one of my concerns about online church. I think it's a great option for a lot of people who can't get out. I think it's a great option people when you're traveling. I think it's a great option, uh, you know, for uh, other different things of people in other lands and stuff like that. But, but I'm afraid that sometimes people then will begin to think, well, I can just watch online church from home. But do you know what that means? It means you're not part of the flock. You're not, you're not working together to get to the place where Jesus wants to take the flock. The, the scripture says that we are iron sharpening iron. 
and that's not happening. And doing so, when that happens, when, when we read our Bibles less, when we're practicing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and church attendance and service and, and generosity, when we're, when we're doing those things less, my fear is that many of us will miss the great promise that is made to us here, he restores my soul. Because eventually, guess what? You'll go, ah, I'm going to watch online church today. I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to watch something else. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He restores my soul. You know, in that book of Philippians, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is Philippians 1.6, where, where the Lord, the Apostle Paul, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Do you know that you is plural? Do you know it's actually written to a flock, to a local congregation, as their souls are being restored you see, a lot of us right now, we're spent. I mean, we're shot out. We're spent. And many of us um, really don't know what to do right now. And David says, he restores us. When our souls are sick, Jesus heals us. I love that about the Gospels. Whenever Jesus speaks, man, things happen. And that, let me tell you, that is the best part of being a pastor. When you get to see people come in and they are just a hot mess, they are a wreck, their marriage is falling apart, they're, they're on drugs, they're on alcohol, they're, they're, they're just guy, all they care about is their, you know, their career, they get to the top of wherever they wanted to get and they're like, this is it? This is it? I thought it was going to be better when I got here. And they come into the church, and after just really a short time, for some of them, months of just sitting under the Word of God and getting into the Word of God and getting the Word of God into them to see how their souls are being restored and how they are being healed. When we repent of our sins, when we, the stuff we know we're doing that's wrong, and we turn to God and we beg Him for help, Jesus forgives and He cleanses us and He restores us. When we fall, he picks us up. When we're weak, Jesus strengthens us. But what is the most important part of all of that here? Jesus does it. You don't do it. I don't do it. Loved ones, eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. He does it. He restores my soul. And some of you feel like in this life you've gotten run over. Or some of you are just flat out run down. Or you're just completely worried and wearied. My hope, my prayer for you tonight and for the rest of this year and for the rest of your life is that you learn to enjoy the restoration of Jesus Christ. That when he restores you, you don't have a sense of guilt. You have a sense of joy and a sense of worship. That you learn 
to enjoy, you know, when Jesus calls you to return to him and you come back to his flock. John 10.10, that same chapter, Jesus said about the good shepherd, Jesus said this, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life. Now, generally that means eternal life, but eternal life is eternal. It begins this day. It begins now. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Doesn't that sound wonderful? What did David say? He restores my soul. Verse 3 continues. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths. Remember we said that's plural of righteousness. We said that the, that the hills, we said last week or, or the, week, the week we did it two weeks ago, that, 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 there was, that these hills that they had go you know, up and down. And what are the paths of righteousness for us? Well, life has many choices. And without the Lord, we are prone to take the wrong path. And a couple years ago, we did a summer on the, you know, for, into the fall on the Sermon on the Mount. And that sure made it obvious to me that I'm prone to take the wrong path. And why does he lead us in the path of righteousness or the path of righteousness? For his name's sake. Because that's who he is. For his reputation. We often state the fact that Jesus Christ led a perfect life. That means in, in every way, in every day, Jesus walked, and in the Bible, walk is how you live in the paths of righteousness. As I've told you before, to me, the most amazing thing about Jesus, the most amazing, it blows my mind, that he lived in perfect 24-7 trust to his heavenly Father, I can't even get. I can't even wrap my arms around that. I'm I'm so in awe of him in that. And since Jesus always walked that way, he always leads that way. D did you hear that? Since he always walked in perfection, he always leads in perfection, even if it doesn't seem that way to us. Even if maybe the results are not working for the way you want them to go. We all have plans and we wanted the way things to turn out. And it hasn't turned out that way. But loved ones, how often have we looked back and we thought, oh man, I'm glad that didn't work out that way. Because God had a better plan for me and a better plan for my life. I think of that, you know, I got married a little bit later in life and I think of that every time I was in my late 20s, and I think it might not, might be, late, might not be late now. But, you know, I, I remember thinking I had different girlfriends and that I, that I really liked. I dated nice girls. But, but every time I look at Pam and my kids, I think, oh, Lord, thank you that, that maybe it didn't seem great at the moment. But you knew the place that you wanted to bring me. For a follower of Jesus, the righteous life is the way home. But often, the way home, those paths seem wrong to us. A lot of times, it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. You know, one step forward, two steps back. A lot of times, it feels like we're not making any progress. A lot of times, it feels like nothing in our lives is going right. Why is that? 
Well, part of it is because we're not looking at the Lord. But I think another part of it is from, I find from, in my own life sometimes, from big decisions, I mean, you know, the really big ones, to just the simple decisions of daily life, the temptation is to think and do what's best for ourselves. Instead of seeking the Lord for the paths of righteousness. The Apostle Peter wrote these words, 1 Peter 2.25, encouraging people in tough times. He said, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What does David do? He says he does this all. Why? For his name's sake. You see, Jesus brings us back to the right path for his name's sake because it guarantees us that his path is right. Let's be honest. Come on. Friends, right? Family. We all need guidance. We all need lots of guidance if we are going to walk, if we are going to live in the paths of righteousness. Now, I've met a, quite a number of people who told me that they are cafeteria Catholics which means they'll tell me that we, a lot of our outreaches, I've talked to my, some of my own family members, and they say, I, I put my tray on the, in front of the food line, and I go down and I tell the person, yeah, I want some of that. No, I don't want any of that. I don't want some of this. I don't want anything of that. But I have to be honest with you. I know a lot of cafeteria Christians, those who wouldn't call themselves Catholics but, but are the same way. They, they pick and choose. So I'm equally picking on both groups of people. Now, People who read the Bible won't say that they're picking and choosing the path. They'll, they'll, they'll hide behind grace. They'll say it's all about grace. But what they don't realize is when you go out and, and, and sin or you pick and choose what you're going to obey, what God says, and what He doesn't say, that what you're doing and what I do is we are betraying the leading love of Jesus. We are betraying the, the way Jesus wants to lead us. And the Bible says that, that when we put our trust in Jesus, he gives us a new heart, and that heart desires the holiness of Jesus Christ. And that is one of the greatest gifts of salvation. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Selah. Stop. Pause. Think about that. In the New Testament, we read in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 20 and 21, uh, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the, death, from, the, from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. We might say he's leading you to do his will working in you what is well and pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Finding our way home is no easy task. Finding our way home to heaven is, is something that is absolutely impossible. So what happens? We need to be led. And Jesus said in John 3.13, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus' favorite name for himself 
the Son of Man. The Apostle Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You see, if you follow him in the paths of righteousness, even if it doesn't seem like the right thing to do or the best thing for you, or you don't want to do it, you are working yourself towards a crown. Verse 4, I want to read it twice. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's go slowly. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So things are now turning for the sheep. So what happened to the, to the nice pasture? What happened to the still water? Well, they ate, all the, they ate the field, and the, the water's not there, and they got to move on. And some of, it says, some of the versions say, not the valley of the shadow of death, but the darkest valley. And so what would happen would be they would go down into these valleys. We talked about that before. And the, and the shepherd would, would lead the sheep because those valleys and would be full of, of thieves and wild animals. And yet he says, I will fear no evil. Why? Why would a sheep in a dark valley where there's thieves and robbers and wild animals, why would, they, why would a sheep fear no evil for you, who's you? My shepherd are with me. David's saying, I know, Lord, when I'm with you, I'm safe with you. Your rod, we said that, that used to beat off thieves and wild animals. You could say the rod was used to beat off death and your staff. Remember we said that the staff was used to keep the sheep on the path. And also had that J hook on it that they, if you felt a sheep fell down into a ditch, that Jesus could, could take that J hook and he could lift you up and he could save you. The shepherd could lift you up and save you, pull you up from the pit. It was also symbolic. A staff was symbolic of, of a king. So he says, your rod, you're your beating off death. Your staff, you're keeping me on the path. Your ability to save me. Because you're my king. And how does he end it? They comfort me. Now there's a lot here, and, but perhaps the big point is, and this was the point where I was trying to decide whether I should do one week or two, and this is the big point uh, where, where we come to where, G, where he says, you are with me. One of the greatest aspects of the Christian life not only does the Lord Jesus save all who turn to him and put their trust in him from the penalty of their sins, he took them on the cross, he promises to be with you. Now just imagine there's a flock and we know there's thieves around and we know there's wild animals around. Does the shepherd leave the flock? No. He stays there on the lookout. And in the same way that the shepherd doesn't leave the sheep unattended, Jesus does not leave his own unattended in the journey of this life. That is especially important to remember in the dark valleys. That is especially important to remember that Jesus has not left you. It might seem like he has, but he hasn't. He's promised not to leave you. That was a big promise in the Old Testament. Big promise that Yahweh was with them. 
And then we come to the first page of the New Testament. We just spent here in our church over three years studying the Gospel of Matthew. And what, was on the, what is on the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew 1.23, we shall call Jesus, a title to describe who he is, Emmanuel, God with us. All the way from the Old Testament, 400 years in between, where nothing really seemed to be happening, they weren't hearing from God, and what does he tell us on the first page? I'm still with you. And I will still be with you. And then we went all the way through Matthew's gospel. Emmanuel, God with us. And how did it end? Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. From the beginning to the end, Jesus says, I am with my people. We, what, you say, well, what about the end of the age? Revelation 21, 3 and 4, uh, the end, at the end of the Bible and the end of the age says this, John writes, the Apostle John writes, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What did David say in verse 4? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now there's a nuance there. We talked a little bit about it. It's not that there won't be evil, but I will fear no evil. He's not saying that evil's not real. It is real sometimes. But David is saying, I won't fear it because you are with me. And when I do fear it, I will remind myself that you are with me. So this side of heaven, Jesus has promised he will be with us. Oh, we, we long for the days of Revelation 21. I know we do. But this side of heaven, Jesus has promised he will be with us even in the midst of evil. But I think when we think about that, it's time for some of us to really go to the spiritual eye doctor. Because I think a lot of us have the wrong impression of Jesus. I know growing up I had a picture of Jesus was like the guy in the movies who had no emotion. He was always like meek and mild-mannered Jesus, kind of like, oh, how you doing? I'm Jesus. But no, 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 no. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. I always say he would have been the kind of guy who came to church in his, you know, in his van or his pickup truck or something like that, wearing, wearing, wearing Timberlands and you know, jeans, and his, they wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be tied, and he'd just come off a tough day on the job. And shepherds, we think, oh, shepherds, that's so nice, leading the sheep. What do you think it was like corralling those sheep all day and beating off wild animals and thieves. Shepherds were what? Shepherds were tough guys. Shepherds were like soldiers who are called to protect people. But they were called to protect sheep. They were, if you will, the, the warrior protectors of the sheep. And, and Jesus, King Jesus, in addition to being the shepherd king, is also the warrior king. 
John 10 again, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Interesting. Are you sure he knows you? Okay, you say, well, he, he knows who everybody is. I get it, I get it. But, but are you sure he knows you? And I'm known by my own. Do you know him? As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's your cross. It's right there. Same chapter, John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? He gives people eternal life who put their trust in him. They're never going to perish. It means they're not going to end up in hell. They're not going to die the eternal death. They're going to end up in heaven. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And in case you forgot already, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You see, do you, friend, do you understand, if you've put your trust in Jesus, the grip that God has on you? He said, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. Oh, but you don't know, I, 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 I did a bad thing today. Jesus says, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. Oh, but somebody told me I'm not the best Christian on the planet. Well, neither are they. No one is going to snatch you out of his hand. See, again, we have to think of Jesus in the sense of, I mean, they beat him silly. And he still was able to go to that cross. He's not some (laughs) easy going, oh, whatever, man. He's the warrior king. Revelation 12, 5, talking about Jesus. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Verse 5, David writes, You prepare a table, and the idea again is a banquet, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The Lord will what? Keep him safe in the presence of his enemies. You anoint my head with oil, soothing oil to comfort him. My cup runs over, talking about overflowing with joy. Isn't it interesting that the Lord promised David safety in the valley of the shadow of death and here in the presence of his enemies? And Here's what we got to get, guys. Because when this makes the journey from your head to your heart, you will never be the same. The Lord promised safety from the shadow of the valley of death and from our enemies. And we must understand as followers of Jesus, that safety came at the cost of his beloved and his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Oh, you have to see that. You have to see that Jesus was dying on that cross in your place for your sins, in my place for my sins, but also he was defeating sin and death, which means that we are going to 
be safe. But we have to appreciate the cost to Jesus and the cost to his heavenly Father. And with Jesus saying, it is finished. And with Jesus rising from the dead, the soul-searching question for all of us tonight is simply this. Are you sitting at the banquet table? Are you sitting there and enjoying the hospitality and the presence of the Lord Jesus? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, oh man, I'm so glad that you're watching. Let me ask you this. With all sincerity, do you want a seat at the table? Do you know a seat is totally available to you? What do you need to get to that seat? You need to have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to get to there, to get to that feast. You need to put your trust in Jesus. Or let me ask you this. If you don't want a seat at that table, do you want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone? Do you want to face the enemy of death alone? Many of us have heard of the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Passover meal, a reminder of way back into the time of Moses when the people of God were saved from their enemies, Pharaohs and the Egyptian army, and the destroyer, the angel that brought death to people in the land. How did that work, you say? Well, God said when he wanted to take his people out of Egypt, he said, um, take the blood of a lamb and put it over your door. We equate that to the blood of Jesus over the door of our hearts. And God said, if the blood of the lamb wasn't over your door, when the destroyer passed over a house, the firstborn male died. But if it was over the door, he lived. Now I believe with all of my heart there was an element of faith there where they believed what God said. Now, Let's fast forward to the Last Supper. Jesus was preparing them that he was what John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he was the Lamb of God, and if, and if his blood was written over your heart, that you would not die, that he would die for you. In one of the most amazing events in all of history, at the Last Supper, Jesus washed their feet. <laughs> I know someday I will be in heaven and I will meet the apostles and I will say to them, when he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, what was it like when you realized that God washed your feet, man? What was that like? When you realized that your walk, the way you lived, your feet were washed clean. Get the connection there, please. Remember we said walk is the way you live. He washed their feet symbolically. And he gave them bread. He fed them bread representative of his body and blood representative of, his, I mean, wine representative of his blood. More than anything, he gave them of himself. 
In verse 6, David concludes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He always knew that God was with him. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for David, the house of the Lord was really defined by the presence of the Lord, not a building. And here David is confident that the Lord's shepherding will take him all the way into eternity because he knows he's being followed by the Lord. Remember we said last week he was surrounded on all sides by the Lord. David is confident that nobody will be able to snatch him out of God's hand, even though Jesus has yet to say it. David is confident that he is eternally secure and that his relationship with the Lord will be an eternal one and will be a joyful one. As we said last week, goodness and mercy, some versions say goodness and loving kindness, right? It was not just that God followed him, but that God pursued David. And you get the sense that that following, that that pursuit will never end. And the dark valleys of David's life, the dark valleys of your life, will be turned in to the joy of heaven when we walk with Jesus When we're his people and he's our God and there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more COVID. What a wonderful day. To me, as beautiful as Psalm 23 is, it takes on a whole new beauty when we realize that the Old Testament shepherd king became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. I love Jesus' touching words in Luke 12, 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. (laughs) Do you believe that, friend? Do you believe that Jesus really wants to give you the kingdom? Do you believe the Father really wants to give you the kingdom John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Again, there's the cross. But Jesus, the shepherd king, was also the Lamb of God, who John the Baptist told us about. Revelation 7, 17, at the end of the Bible, John writes, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is, it is quite natural for you to long to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hear Jesus' famous words at the Last Supper, John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, also in me. He equates himself to, believe also in me, he equates himself to God. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen. Remember, Keith, nobody said it better than Keith Green. If God made the world in seven days, he's been working on heaven for 2,000 years, we are living in a garbage dump. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reality is the way to heaven is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that one must turn to and put their trust in. But as we get ready to wrap it up, let me just ask you a question if you're not a follower of Jesus. Will Jesus really forgive your sins? Will Jesus really bring you home to heaven? You know, a lot of the religious leaders, they were not down with Jesus' teaching on this. They were like, hey, they got to be prim and proper religious people like we are. They couldn't stand religious. They couldn't stand Jesus. Funny, the regular dudes, they love Jesus because he spoke to them like a real guy, not with this crazy language that nobody could understand. Before I ever step in front of a microphone or a camera, I always say, Lord, I want to be simple. I don't want them to leave here thinking, oh, Pastor Jim is so smart. I want them to leave here thinking, man, there's something to this Jesus, or this, we serve a great God, or Jesus is wonderful. And there's a lot of religious people who object to the fact that people could come to Jesus, put their trust in him, and he would be willing to forgive all their sins. A lot of people object to that. Well, let's hear what Jesus had to say. In Luke chapter 15, he told the story. Verses 4 through 7, What man of you, Jesus said, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Listen to this. Christian, non-Christian friend, listen, listen, listen. This can get you into heaven. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns from their sin, turns to God, puts their trust in Jesus, and tries to and says to God, I'm going to turn from my sin and I need your help and I need your forgiveness. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. There will be joy in heaven, friend, if you put your trust in Jesus. Let me tell you something, man. Tonight, heaven wants a party. Tonight, heaven wants to party in your name, in your name. No matter what you've done, no matter what it is, Jesus says, I died for you. Now come, come, fear no evil. Come be part of my kingdom. He died for you. He gave himself for you. And now says to you, will you give yourself back? Well, let's pray.